church. Good morning, good morning. I like this microphone. I think I need a speaker system and a microphone wherever I go just to follow me around so I can be louder than everybody else. That was supposed to be funny, but I guess nobody laughs, so there you go. All right, we are going to take our offering while we uh, share some of our announcements. Our elders are coming forward to pass that. So let's have a quick word. We are in the New Testament book of Galatians, if you would like to turn there in your New Testament. Galatians. English language is curious. It's not pronounced Galatians. In the Greek, it wasn't pronounced Galatia in the time of Paul. Uh, that would have been a mispronunciation. It's Galatea. In the Greek, it is Galatea. The churches, Galatea was not a town. It was a, a region, if you will, that contained many towns that Paul had visited on his first missionary trip. He went through this region that is today south-central Turkey, and he names a bunch of towns through there like Lystra and Derby and Iconium uh, where he desired to take the gospel. And so there's no doubt in my mind whatsoever that this Galatian epistle, as we call it, was written to those churches right after his first missionary trip, which would make this one of the very first books written in the New Testament. It's not a theologically heavy book, although Paul is very concerned that everywhere he went, the Jewish element within the society of that town would always try to water down or mix up Paul's plain message about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they try to insert some legalism into it. We still have that tendency today. It's been the tendency of the church for 2,000 years where we know theologically in our heads Christ is enough. But there is some legalistic sense in some people that says, well, that's all fine and well, but. And as soon as you hear that, but it doesn't matter what else they say, you should tune it right out. Jesus Christ is enough. Did not God say in a different context, my grace is sufficient? What can we add to the grace of God, to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the Jews wanted to say, well, you Gentiles need to get circumcised. As you can imagine, the 20, 30, and 40-year-old Gentile converts had no interest whatsoever in being circumcised at that age. And they said, well, what's that got to do with Jesus Christ? The answer is nothing. And yet there are some today that want to continue to add, it's not just Jesus. Jesus is fine, but you also need to get baptized. Or you need to read this book or this magazine or follow this teaching or, or become circumcised or follow the Jewish law. Oh, you're not part of the Roman Catholic Church? Well, you're going to hell. Where does it say that? Anywhere in Scripture. Let me ask you this basic question. Is Jesus Christ enough? Yes, an overwhelming answer, and that's the trouble that the Galatians had because people were leaning on them saying, well, your grace is fine, but you also need to do this. Grace is fine, but you need to keep the law, the Jews were saying. Grace is fine, but you need to continue your pagan ways of worship when you were a Greek. Your pagan roots go way back. It's all about Mother Nature. In the beginning, God created. I don't read Mother Nature anywhere in there, but we would prefer to worship the creation 
rather than the, the creator. So this half a dozen tiny churches, nowhere near the size of the folks that we've got here this morning. It was located, as I said, in South Central Turkey, then called Central Asia Minor. And Paul had started these churches with just a handful of people here and there. Home fellowships. Home fellowships is what they were. They didn't have the formality of church buildings. They just got together where they could. Dates this epistle somewhere between 48 and 49 A.D., written right after his missionary trip, uh, earliest book of the New Testament, perhaps, and cer certainly Paul's first epistle. The original inhabitants of this area were Phrygians, not that you know or care what that means, but they were from Gaul, which is where the word Galatea comes from. They were originally from Gaul, what is today Western Europe from France and Germany and countries in, in that surrounding region. But they had brought with them into this belief system of theirs, this nature worship. They were the original tree huggers, if you will, or, or those environmentalists that radicalized the way they looked at things. Uh, so the churches there were kind of an admixture between ultra-legalistic Jews and pagan worshiping tree huggers. And you wonder, how in the world did these people get together by putting aside their differences and focusing on Jesus Christ? And I wish that every denomination, I wish that every church throughout the world today would do the same thing. It's not Jesus plus something else. Well, we do baptism this way. We baptize them forward. Well, we can't fellowship with them. We baptize them backward. Well, we don't do that. We just sprinkle them. And it's divided the church over nonsensical issues. Is Jesus Christ enough? then we should reject anything else that adds something to that. Oh, it's Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus church denominational affiliation, Jesus plus works. It's Jesus. You're saved by grace. That's God's unmerited favor towards us. We didn't deserve it. We weren't good enough. We weren't saved because God looked down and said, well, they're keeping law better than anybody else. God looked down and saw we were a hot mess. I mean, who of us did not sin, right? God looked down on us with pity and mercy and said, I need to do something for those fools. <laughs> he gave us the law which tells us how perfect he is, but then showed us how imperfect we are because none of us kept the law. The whole purpose of the Jewish law was, was misunderstood by the Jews. They thought, well, if we keep the law, God is honor bound to save us. He owes us. Except the Bible says he's not a debtor to any man. But the Jews had this works, this religion. Well, if you pray through the rosary, if you do this, if you add this, if you read these, oh, on and on and on. And it became such a burden to the people that they just walked away. They just thought, yeah, we'll let those religious leaders do that nonsense. We'll, uh, we'll stay home. And there are a great many people today that are offended by what is known as traditional mainstream church because it seems to be encrusted in all sorts of things that have nothing to do with God. Our job should be to present to people the simple gospel that says, God loves you. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever, any of us, Phrygian or Galatians or Romans or Jews, whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's the simple gospel. Well, everywhere that Paul went trying to share that simple gospel, there were those that were trying to discredit him and undermine him. He had his fair share of critics, much as Jesus did. 
before them, but he is going to paint out this picture to them through these next many chapters that justification is by faith alone. When I place my faith, trust, hope, and confidence in Jesus as the Son of God who died for my sins, and I've accepted him as my personal Lord and Savior, I'm justified. It is just as if I had never sinned. I can add nothing to that. He did it all. That's why he said it when he hung on the cross, it is finished. He didn't say it is finished, but... But we add that today, complicating what should be something very simple. I'm glad that God put it as simply as He did. Instead of making it so difficult, few would be saved. He opened the door wide for everyone. God is not willing that any should perish, which which puts me at odds with several different theologies that are out there today. No, God elected some to hell and some to heaven. That's not what the Bible says. And yet some vigorously argue that point, dividing the body of Christ. How is Christ glorified by division? He is not, but by unity. What unites the church is the blood of Jesus Christ, nothing else. If you like going to one church or one denomination, that's fine. If you like getting baptized backwards, cool. If you like being sprinkled awesome, forwards, fine. Doesn't matter, but don't let Christ divide the church over such non-essentials. It is His love that binds us together. We've all been forgiven. That should plant in every one of us a humble heart of gratitude. It says, I'm just glad I'm saved, man. I'm just glad I'm going to heaven. I'm nobody special. I didn't deserve it. He poured out His grace. I come at the end of my rope, and there was Jesus. Turned over the mess of my life to him, and he's been turning it around ever since. You'd, I can add nothing to that. Paul absolutely destroys all arguments in favor of mixing the law or works or deeds with faith in Christ Jesus. Let's look at the text because it just gets better from here. As he starts off, uh, Paul, verse 1 of chapter 1 of Galatians, Paul, an apostle, sent not by, from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ, And God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers with me, to the churches in Galatea, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God, our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. In just a few sentences, he has planted that gospel seed in the hearts of all of those that would read this circular letter. It was this letter read in all of these cities, passed around, probably made its way all over Asia Minor before it was said and done. It's been throughout the entire world up to this present day. Paul describes himself in verse 1 as an apostle, and you've heard that said before. An apostle means that one that was sent, i.e. with a message, a missionary, you would call him. Well, because false teachers had challenged the apostleship of Paul, they questioned his authority because, well, man didn't ordain you. Where's your ordination papers, pastor? Who ordained you? It's driven, it's put such pressure upon the pastors that some pastors will get online, send in their $90 just to get a piece of paper that says you're now ordained. So they can wave a piece of paper around. It's not worth the, the price of the paper that it's printed on, total waste of toner ink, but it says on there, ordained by somebody who nobody knows. 
What are their credentials? Who cares? All that matters is that I'm ordained. Poor Calvary Chapel pastors are often asked, well, where'd you go to Bible college, Pastor? Like with their snooty nose up in the air. Well, where'd you go to seminary, Pastor? How many degrees do you have? And we brag on the things that the world brags on, and it should be to the shame of the church. Here's our credentials. I know Christ. I am called by him to be not an apostle in the sense that Paul was. I'm certainly not one of the 12, but neither was he. But he was called just as legitimately by God. He wasn't one of the 12. He got saved about five years after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so people discredited him all the time. Oh, he's not a real apostle. He's a Johnny-come-lately. He he's not a, a, He wasn't there walking with Jesus by the Lake of Galilee. Paul says, oh, I've got plenty of credentials, but what matters most is that I'm called by God, not by man. That's what he says in verse 1. In other words, whatever you guys think is important, the only thing that really matters is who we are in Christ Jesus. You're either saved or you're not. If you're not saved, it doesn't matter how many religious credentials you have. You're not called by God until you get saved, and then he's got a purpose and a plan for your life that will take you to some wonderful places. He's an apostle, but it's more than a missionary. An apostle is one sent with a message, yes, to be sure, but he is sent with authority from the one who sent him to represent his kingdom. That's what apostle means. Paul's not representing himself. He's trying to tell people about the king of kings and lord of lords. The Jews struggled with that. The pagans struggled with that. There is one God. People that had been worshiping idols for centuries and had many gods, or so they thought, did not like being confronted with the fact that they were wrong. So it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that separates him from any other figure in religious antiquity. He is singular and unique in what he did, who he claimed to be, and the resurrection uh, validated any credentials that, that Jesus needed. The resurrection of Christ is absolutely central to everything that Paul says in every letter he wrote. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the keystone of the entire Christian faith. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. Do I believe in a physical, literal resurrection from Jesus Christ from the dead? Yes, because it is literal and it is physical. Have you not read Matthew 28? Have you not read about his resurrection? Have you not read in Corinthians where over 500 eyewitnesses saw him? How do you argue with that kind of credibility? That is an astounding amount of evidence. Paul was called by God. That's what his credentials were. And he had, in fact, seen the risen Christ. You'll remember in Acts chapter 9, Paul is literally knocked off his high horse. He had gone there to persecute the church. Why? Because he was a zealous Jew. And he saw those Christians as undermining the law of Moses. Their almighty law and their almighty temple were things that had become objects of veneration. They worshipped them. They didn't care if God was in the temple or not, but what a temple. Look at the architecture. Ooh, ah. The big cathedrals, the gold-plated faucets and the bathrooms. Look at the size of their TV ministry. And we're tempted to still worship those things today and think that they are of greater value in God's eyes than the smallest church meeting in an Iowa cornfield. 
with 20 people in attendance, pastored by a guy who's been there for 25 years and gets no attention whatsoever. Called by God, accredited by God. That's what matters most. So don't ask pastors about their academic background because it'll either make them feel bad about themselves or lead to pride about themselves. And you don't even want to go there. Pastors don't need to be puffed up with pride, and they don't need to be, have people questioning them constantly. Are, are you called by God, and do you have any ordination or piece of paper from somebody? Jesus is enough. He greets the church with a standard greeting, what appears to be in verse 3, grace, kairing. It was a, a very typical and common Greek greeting. And then he says, and peace. Well, the Hebrew term shalom means peace, so he's addressing Jews and Gentiles alike in a language familiar to both. But there's more to it than that. He's reminding them up front, you're saved by grace. You don't earn it. You didn't deserve it. You're saved by grace. You're kept by grace, not by good works. There is a work that is going on in you by the power of God's Holy Spirit that is apart from the law has nothing to do with the law. It has everything to do with a supernatural empowering. The moment I give my heart and life to Jesus Christ, He gives me His Holy Spirit, and He calls me His own. I follow His Word, not in the hopes that I can get saved if I read the Word enough. I'm already saved, so I read the Word. I don't read it to get saved. I'm already saved, so I read it. If you're born again this morning, you should be in the Word of God all the time. You should be consulting God. You should be praying. You should be seeking Him out. It's the only book that He ever wrote, contrary to Mormon doctrine. Didn't mean to step on anybody's toes there, but the Mormons say, well, the Bible is fine, but you also need the Book of Mormon. It's God's greatest revelation. You also need the Pearl of Great Price, Doctrines and Covenants. As soon as anybody says, well, Jesus Christ is enough, but scratch out whatever comes, just throw it in the garbage. You know, well, the Bible's just fine. Jesus Christ is fine. But what you really need to do is pay attention to the Watchtower magazine. Uh-huh. Throw it in the trash. Anybody who tells you they have another gospel or in addition to the gospel, in the Old Testament it said, when God gave the law, don't add to it, don't take away from it. It says that also in the book of Revelation when Jesus reversed that and says, don't monkey with the Word of God. You don't take it out and you don't add to it. And yet for 2,000 years, that's what the Jews did. They took the Word of God and then they added to it. They had an oral tradition. They had a written tradition. They had the traditions of the elders and different teaching rabbis. They had opinions. They had commentaries that would fill a library. They had added to the Word of God. And so when they come to Jesus and say, why don't you and your disciples keep the traditions of the elders? They're not talking about the Bible. They're talking about, well, how come they don't wash their hands this way and then this way? And then they wipe it like this, and then you wipe it on a clean towel, and you have to burn the towel. Really? Tradition. Have you ever seen... Fiddler on the Roof. Any of you old enough to remember that one? Fiddler on the Roof, Tevya. Got to love that guy. He's pulling his ox cart because his horse came up lame, and he's going, Lord, I know we're the chosen people, but couldn't you choose someone else? <laughs> Life was hard for Jews in Russia <laughs> in the early 1900s. I understand that, but I think Tevya in that movie also portrayed an ignorance of the love and grace and mercy of God. He saw himself as a failure in keeping the law of God, but haven't we all? 
Jesus said, you, you think that you've kept the law? You say that you haven't murdered somebody? You ever hated somebody? You say that you haven't committed adultery, really? You ever thought lustfully about somebody? And he convicted us all as having fallen short. The law, the, the purpose of the law, and the Jews got this wrong. The purpose of the law was to show us two things, how holy God is and perfect he is, and how unholy and imperfect I am. The law, in essence, was a mirror. It was never a method of salvation. It told us about a perfect God and then showed us how far we have fallen short of that. And so in the Old Testament, how were people saved? Not by keeping the law. They were saved by grace through faith. Same as in the New Testament. We're saved by grace through faith. It's always been that way. If the wages of sin under the law in the Old Testament meant that innocent blood had to be shed to atone for your sins, what do you do when you run out of animals? You ever thought about that? I mean, if you sin once a day, well, there goes that ox. So you sin 10 times a day? Well, there goes the whole barnyard. Okay, what about tomorrow? You're out of animals. What are you going to do? What, what can you do? Fall on your face, repent of your sins, and ask for God's mercy, grace, and favor. That's how people were saved. And they didn't realize that instead they built up this religious, prideful system that kept them at arm's distance from God because they smugly thought, I'm good enough to get into the kingdom of God. I don't need grace. I don't need favor. I don't need goodness. You hear it all the time in the unsaved world. Well, are you going to heaven when you die, brother? Well, I'm hoping my good deeds outweigh my bad. Where does it say in Scripture that's how you're saved? But that's how they justify it. Like maybe if I got one more good deed versus bad, I get into heaven. Really? All of those bad deeds condemn you. In fact, if there was just one bad deed, James says he who has broken the law in only one point is guilty of breaking the entire law. <sighs> Saved by grace. Kept by grace. That was central to all of Paul's New Testament writings. Because the church either struggled with self-deprecation, they thought poorly about themselves, or they thought too highly of themselves. It's the same thing that plagues the church today. Oh, I'm a lowly worm and I'm a miserable, wretched human being. No, no, you're a child of God. Or, oh, I'm a proud Pharisee. I tithe all the way down to the last mint tea leaf in my garden. Nine for me and one mint tea leaf for God. Like he needs your mint tea leaves. And you're cumin. Are you serious? And yet, so it either led to self-deprecation, which you see often today. It's, it, it's what causes half of the church counseling jobs that are out there today. Or people are puffed up and prideful. Here's the problem. Both of them keep you away from God. God loves you. It's not because you're so lovable. Really, especially in your case, bear. It's <laughs> so what happens when you interrupt the pastor's sermon. I love you, bear. You know, I'm saved by grace. I'm kept by grace. Those things should keep me humble. And a humble church is a church that has no trouble at all uniting around the work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a church that because that love binds us together and we realize how much we've been forgiven, we judge no one. We love everyone. We seek his face. We humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, knowing that he will lift us up in due season. 
but we trust Him. We don't make, we don't blow our molehills into mountains. We don't overstate things. We don't get weird about things that are of no consequence when it comes to eternal matters. Paul reminds him in verse 3, it's by grace that you've been saved. And because you've been saved, I pray that you'd enjoy the peace of God. Peace, the peace of God that transcends all understanding. You've been saved by grace. If you're saved this morning, just raise your hand and say amen. Amen. You should be walking because you're saved in the peace of God. You've been given the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace. The list goes on. But a lot of Christians, where you, you look at them, you go, where's the peace? You either need to get in touch with the fruit of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Word of God and the person of Jesus Christ, or you need to switch to decaf right now. Some people, they just seem, where's your peace? They're anxious, they're fretful, they're this, they're that. Where's the peace? Where's the peace of God? Well, Paul is praying that they have, because they've experienced the grace of God, may they experience the peace of God since. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself, verse 4 says it all, we can add nothing to this, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. This present evil age is opposed to the kingdom of God, which is soon to come. And the eternal state when we walk with God uh, forever, it is a present evil age, and it is according to the will of God and the Father that we walk by the power of the Holy Spirit as long as He leaves us here. That's why it's dangerous to get too close to the world. John would put it this way in 1 John 2.15, do not love the world. Interesting word there for love, agape. Don't love anything in the world more than you love God. It uses that term agape. There's room for one in a heart that is full of agape, and that room is for God and God alone. And so he says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Whoa. You can't serve two masters is what Jesus said. There's only room for one on the throne of your heart. And it's either going to be sin, self, the world, or God. But you have to make that choice. For everything in the world, John continues, the cravings of sinful man the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does come not from the Father but from the world. So avoid emotional attachments to the world. Your heart first and foremost belongs to God. Give him his due. Everything else will fall into place. But if you start telling God what you want him to do for you and you start demanding your own way, It won't end well. We are submitted to the will of God and should be pursuing it with all that is within us. And he says, to whom be glory forever and ever. In other words, Jesus is coming soon. He's bringing his kingdom with him. I can't wait. And he'll give me all of the resources I need to get me from here today in this sinful fallen world to the time that he shows up in the clouds for us. He's coming. We win. Satan doesn't. We should be sharing our faith with those that so desperately need His salvation until the day that He shows up for us. Verse 6, He says, I'm astonished that you were so quickly, you churches scattered throughout Galatea, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you 
by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. What was going on? Jewish Judaizers, as they're called, were trying to subvert their simple faith. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion or trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven who gives you a special pair of eyeglasses, golden tablets, and says, here, read these. An angel who's by the, whose name is Moroni, take the eye off of the end of that. What are you left with? Moron? Okay. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached, you let him be eternally condemned. Eternally condemned? These false teachers were following Paul into the cities that he had left to challenge his authority, to criticize his teaching, to undermine his gospel. They were supposedly Jewish Christians, but they believed that you got to keep the law. You got to keep the religious Jewish holidays, especially circumcision for the Gentiles. You got to do that stuff. When Paul says you've turned to a different gospel, gospel means good news. It's not good news that you have to add something else to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's not good news. You're saved by grace, but got to line up right after service to be circumcised. I'm headed to Golden Corral, Pastor. I'm sorry. Paul taught the Galatians uh, that their basis for their righteousness was was, was not the law, it was God. It was what Jesus Christ had, had, had done for them. The, the test of the gospel really is grace. If the message contains nothing but grace and Jesus Christ and what He's done to atone for our sins, it's not the gospel. There's no good news attached to that. The test of the gospel is grace. He is my righteousness. I hope He's yours. When you look in the mirror, do you say, I'm a pretty righteous guy. I'm pretty tight with the Lord. I'm pretty mature in my faith. You'll hear it in conversations sometime. Do you know how long I've been a Christian? It's not a contest. Where, Where do we get off with those kind of prideful statements, you know? Did you know that I'm an elder in the church? Names and titles, really? We sound like the world. Not the church. The some people that he talks about in verse 7 there were these Judaizers. And he says, my prayer is that verse 8, they're eternally condemned. The Greek is anathema, cursed and condemned to the lowest hell and forever at that. Verse 9, as I've already told you, now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you have accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Am I trying to win the approval of men? Or of God. He was criticized constantly, but he wanted, he lived to, to prove, prove himself to God. I'm a man after your own heart, Lord. I just want to do what you want me to do, say what you want me to say. If you do that, you will be criticized your entire life. Now, once you get into theological arguments, they'll say, ooh, you're so smart. You're so well-trained. You're so this. You're so that. Stop trying to impress people. Don't do that. Try to impress God. Not men. You don't care what men think about you. You don't want to brag on yourself. You should shun it when others brag on you. You're a child of God, saved by grace, walking by the power of His Holy Spirit. But those things should keep us humble. 
So please, 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 don't try to impress me with how smart you are. I'm sure your IQ is 10 times what mine is. I don't doubt that at all. Let's just call it quits there. You win. I'll let you win. You, you win today. That's fine. You want to argue? You argue by yourself. Tell me how it goes. God bless you. I don't want to argue. I'm a child of God. That's good enough for me. I don't need a title after that. I don't need names, initials, or a TV ministry, or, or millions in book sales. I don't need any of that. Jesus is enough. I have always found him to be sufficient. Paul says, verse 10, am I trying to win the approval of men or of God? Am I still trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. He had been a slave to the law. Now he's a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a slight difference between a slave and a bondservant. A slave was somebody who got bought off the slave market somewhere, didn't have much of a choice about it. But a bondservant was somebody, was a Jewish person typically in the Old Testament context who had indentured himself to someone else because he couldn't pay a debt. He owed him. And so he sold himself into slavery, and they could keep them but had to release them on the seventh year. All slaves were to be set free. But there was this, this exclusion in the law that said, if you go to your master and say, man, you've been such a great boss. I mean, I've had food, clothing, and shelter because you, I love the work that you got me doing. I want to be your bond servant forever. You don't have to pay for me again when you got your seven-year service, but I want to stick with you and I'll serve you and your family forever. And if that was agreeable to the owner, what he did is he took you to the front door of the house and he took your earlobe and a leather-piercing awl and he said, this is really going to hurt. And he would punch you right through your earlobe and nail you to the front door. In other words, you belong to this house now. You belong to this house. You may have belonged to some other house in the past. You may have been serving Satan in your past. But the day you got saved, you were marked with blood. You were crucified with Christ as he bore the nail prints in his hand. So that bondservant, a willing bondservant who said yes forever, said, hey, look at this. I'm a bondservant. And that was a badge of courage for him. Look at whom I belong now. Ah. Paul is a bondservant. That is my highest aspiration. If you have any other aspiration, I fear that you will be met with disappointment. You are a bondservant of Christ. More than that, he's adopted you into his own family because of your willingness to go to the door for your willingness to pick up your cross daily, pounding nails in your hands, or in the case of a bondservant, the earlobe. I've never understood body piercings. Have you? I mean, I, got it, I see some of them out there, and I, I get the whole jewelry idea, and okay, fine. But the first thing that occurs to me is, that must have really hurt. Gee whiz, I mean, they got things in their noses. I'm going, that's pretty tender. That's, I, I, I cry when I cut myself shaving for crying out loud and run a three-ring binder through my nose. I'm, I can't even imagine that. What does it cost you to follow Christ? Everything. Everything. 
It costs you your entire life. Don't even sign on if you're not going to serve him with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul and all of your strength. Jesus said many parables about count the cost. It'll cost you everything. Give it up. Give it up now. He knows what he's doing. He loves. He's got a great plan for your life. And that's the thing that encourages me most is Paul was called by God, and he says that to us in verse 11. I know that you and I are called by God as well. In Jeremiah 29, written hundreds of years before the New Testament, he said God, at, at God's encouragement, I want you to tell the people this, I got a plan for you. I got a plan for your life. It's found in Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 11. You, you know the passage well. Paul says, verse 11, here, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preach to you is not something that man made up. This isn't some man-made theology like, you know, Mount Zeus and, and the demigods that sat up there according to Greek culture. It's not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting to me because he was a learned rabbi. This man had gone to school most of his life. He was theologically brilliant. No doubt in my mind that the equivalent today would have been in multiple PhDs. He could have argued any one of us into the dirt and humiliated us doing it, and he would have loved every second of it. That's who he used to be. He was learned, but he now says, you know what? This gospel, the, the grace that I walk in now, that wasn't taught to me in any theological institution, in any rabbinic school. I was taught by God himself. I saw Jesus Christ on that road to Damascus. I was forever changed. He spoke. I heard his voice. I saw the brilliant flash of light around me. I was there, and I received this gift, this calling, this gospel from him. The Jews didn't make it up. God did. It's God's plan to save the world. So much grace. So much grace tied up in that. Verse 13, for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism far beyond many Jews of my own age. You hear the pride? I used to be proud. I used to be arrogant. And I was extremely zealous for the traditions, traditions of my father. It had nothing to do with the Word of God, the power of God, the person of God. It had to do with appearances and tradition. Paul says, I was at the top of that heap. I was as religious as they come. I was zealous. But when God who set me apart from birth, knitting me together in my mother's womb, and called me by His grace, say grace. Boy, you're going to hear that an awful lot of times in Paul's writing. In fact, he uses this term over 100 times in his epistles, and all together in the New Testament, it's only found 55 other times. Paul realizes what he'd been saved from, and he was grateful. He knew he didn't earn it or deserve it, and his previous credentials met, meant nothing to him, and God meant everything. He's called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, that is, the non-Jews. I did not consult any man. God was leading me on this journey, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and sometime later returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter, Cephas, 
and stayed with him for 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's half-brother. <clears throat> I assure you, before God, that what I'm writing to you is no lie. Later, I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that were in Christ. He was going to the Gentiles at his own personal expense. He wasn't a part of the Jerusalem crowd. He wasn't a part of the 12 there. His job was as an itinerant preacher to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what drove him. Verse 23, they only heard the report that the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. That's your testimony and mine. We're saved by grace. We're saved by grace. And people say, <laughs> I remember the first time I got in touch with an old high school friend of mine that I hadn't heard from or, or connected with for 20 years, found out that he was in Coronado Island, not far from the place I was going to seminary out in California. And I gave him a call, and he said, well, I haven't heard from you for 20 years. And I said, yeah, it's been forever. It's great to hear your voice again. He said, well, what are you doing these days? Well, funny you mention that. <laughs> you know, the last time he knew anything about me, I, I was touring uh, Europe with a rock and roll band and involved in uh, an appropriate lifestyle to that lifestyle. And I said, well, I'm going to seminary. I'm going to be a pastor. I have never heard a more hysterical laugh in my life. He said, you're joking, right? You're the biggest pagan I know. Man, you were a party animal. You were touring. You were playing guitar. You were, you were out there, dude. And I said, yeah, but then I got saved. I got saved. I came to realize that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, loved me. And he paid the price that all of my sins deserved. And, and despite all the wretched stuff that you remember about me, I'm not that guy anymore. I'm just not him. I'm a changed man. The things that I once used to brag on, I'm now ashamed of. Now ashamed of. I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. It caused the church to praise God. It caused the pagans to shake their head and laugh. They didn't understand. But then I don't expect the world to understand things of such spiritual magnitude. Salvation is something that comes from the heart of God and takes us into eternity for crying out loud. The world can't even begin to understand that. Saved by grace. Kept by grace. In verse 15, to back up just a little bit, God who set me apart from birth. Hmm. Isaiah 49, 1 and 2, listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword in the shadow of his hand. He hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. That's how Isaiah felt about his call on my life. Jeremiah felt the same. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart, Jeremiah. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Isn't that glorious? I mean, before any of us was born, God already knew his plan for your life. We've been trying to figure it out since. But he's known it all along. And that comforts me greatly. He's got a perfect plan for my life. So every day I want to walk in his perfect will, not his permissive will. 
What's the difference? His perfect will is what He wants for me. His permissive will is what He allows me to get away with when I'm in my stupid flesh. He permits it. It's the permissive will of God. If you notice, the last time that you sinned, and I know for some of you it's been centuries back, but for some of you that are more recent, you're thinking, you know, uh, you know when I, I sinned, I was convicted of that, and the conviction led me to repent of my sins and get back in touch with, with God's grace. But His plan for me never stopped. There may have been a hiccup. I hit a speed bump. Yeah, there's plenty of them in life. We all fall short. For sure, but that doesn't mean that God's plan for us was thwarted. And His plan will carry us into eternity. He loves you. You can't believe how good His plan is for your life. Jot Jeremiah 29, verse 11 and following, and read that sometime at your, as you can. It'll thrill your heart. God's hand was upon Paul's life from before his birth, and he had, was the one who had arranged Paul to become a well-educated Jew, a Roman citizen, a man who was immersed in Greek culture and, and Jewish culture alike. God knew what it was going to take to prepare Paul for the ministry. I look back over my life, and sometimes it only makes sense in the rearview mirror. Well, I didn't understand when I was going through, but now I can look back and they say hindsight's 2020. Oh, I can see what God was doing all along the way. He had this plan. Glory to his name. Two simple points in closing out this, this first chapter of the book written to the Galateans, if we may. Don't complicate the gospel. It's not about religion. It's not about dogma. It's not about arguing. It's not about theological minutia. Well, what's the Greek saying in that passage, Pastor Jim? What's the Hebrews? Stop. Stop. It says in the original language, it's pretty much what it says in our good modern translations. Don't try to parse it to death. Just heed it. Just put it into practice. Don't be moved from the simple gospel. Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. Don't get, get more complicated than that. Virgin born in a manger, died on the cross, raised from the dead. Hallelujah. Jesus is enough. He paid the penalty. Uh, my sins deserve raised from the grave. Faith in him is all I need to be saved. I'm not saved by works, not by deeds, anything else. Believe no other gospel. Don't let some cult try to lead you astray. Keep it simple, sheep. That's, you've heard that before, the KISS principle? Keep it simple, sheep. It's not keep it simple, stupid. You're not stupid, you're sheep. But keep it simple. The Mormons, the JWs, other religions, religious dogmatism that's been around for 20, 20 uh, decades, two, 200 decades, you're called by God as much as Paul was. Peter says this to close out. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, you, you, every single one of you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of the darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. More than that, he's adopted you into his own family. You're sons and daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. That keeps us humble. 
that keeps us humble. When we blow it as the children of God, repent. Let tears come to your eyes and tell God, I'm sorry, Lord, I, I didn't mean to do that. Pick me back up, dust me off, forgive me my sins. Fill me once again with your Holy Spirit and help me to do better in the future than I did in the past. Live for God. He lives for you. He lives for you. Live for God. Stand and close in prayer, shall we? Seems fair to me, Lord. You live, you died, and you rose for each one of us. How can I not live for you? How can I trample underfoot your blood or treat it, treat it so flippantly or lightly? How can I not fail to see have been saved by grace? How can I fail to see all that you've done for me? How can I so easily forget the blood that was shed to secure my salvation? Lord, I'm thankful for the communion table that we have in front of us that reminds us of the price that you paid. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that for us, for adopting us into your own family. 